0: Go ahead and take your Bibles if you would. Uh, We're going to be in Acts chapter 1 again. Let me say hello to other campuses. We are very, very excited about what God is doing at different places in WNC. And um, Anyway, we're one church. There's there's six different uh, campuses, if you will, and uh, we have one mission. Uh, we have one Savior. We have one book that we're going to look at today. And I uh, tell you what, as a church, you want to make sure you keep in, in, in prayer this week. We've got a team right now in Southeast Asia, all right. So be praying for them. And then secondly, next week we baptize almost every single Sunday. Uh, but next week there is a lot of people scheduled to be baptized, so you come ready to cheer and put your hands together. And if you're like, "Man, I hadn't been scripturally baptized, or I've never been baptized as a follower of Christ," then man, sign up. You can text the word "baptism" to two eight two eight two. You you can uh, go to the website, and you can uh, go to the website and do backslash baptism. You can get a lot of answers about what that is. Somebody will call you, contact you. Um, but anyway, big day next week, so you come ready to uh, you come ready to cheer. Here's where we are. We're in a second week of a series called "Be uh, the Movement." Be the Movement. What we start about talking about is that early on, at its inception, the Christian Church, the Christian movement, was just that. It was a movement built around a conviction that Jesus Christ came and died as a sinless substitute for sinners and then rose from the grave confirming that he was who he says he was. And then they gathered around a particular mission that God had given them and that was to go and take the message of the gospel, the substitutionary sacrificial death of Jesus and it just, and it spread like wildfire. Historians have different, rests. like how did it spread so, so quickly? But the book of Acts is sort of the highlights of how the early church spread And the reason we called it uh, Be the Movement is because the book of Acts ends. I I always think of the, uh, the series a few years ago with Jack Bauer, 24, because every single time, I mean, how many watch 24? Just raise your hand real quick. I can tell you, I mean, this is a godly church, you can tell. But, with, but because of that, what happened? We would binge watch it, all right? Because I am too impatient to wait till the next week when they're, the world's about to end, all right? We can't wait till next week to see if we're still going to be here. And so what we would do is we would like wait for it to get four, five, six weeks ahead. And then we'd like, we would binge watch it. But every time it would end, it would end with that same thing. That clock would be ticking, that clock would be ticking. Jack Bauer would be right on the fringe of being killed or something happening like next time. That's the way the book actually ends, all right? The gospel's going out, Paul's preaching, and it's just like period, and it just ends. You're like, wait a minute, that's not the way a book usually ends. And the reason is, is that the book of Acts and what the movement of the Christian church, uh, we are still part of that movement. Here we are in Western North Carolina 2,000 years later, and we are to be a part of the Christian movement. Now, when you think about that, last week we talked about embracing the mission, and then we're talking about how does this Undergird who we are as a church. We're kind of leaning in. We've got a Good Friday services for the first time ever in the history of our church, and then we're going to go into Easter in a few weeks. And so we're leaning in, not just what our mission is, but how does that get accomplished at at this church? All right. So uh, I'm going to read you some verses and see if you can't see the common denominator in here. And I'll I'll just then I'll summarize it and make some statements, and then we're going to uh, jump into the text today. Here's a few of them just out of the Book of Acts. Don't turn to these. All right, but Acts two. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Acts 4.4 says, and many of those who had heard the word believed. Acts chapter 6 says we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Acts chapter 8 says, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Acts 15, when Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord. All right, Common denominator is those phrases, the apostles teaching, the word of the Lord, just the word. All those, when you hear those, just think the word Bible, all right? Bible. Let me say it as crystal clearly as I possibly can. Uh, We as a church are a Bible church. That's who we are. All right? We are a Bible teaching, unapologetic. We hold the word of God in very, very, very high standing. We want to do it lovingly. All right, we want to do it lovingly. We want to do it sincerely. We want to have integrity. We don't want to be saying, here's what we preach. but We have no intention of practicing it. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is we will do so confidently and boldly, and we will do so intellig- intelligently and unapologetically. So We're Bible church. That's where the authority comes from, right? That's where the decisions come from. That is what we look to. It's not you. It's not me. It's not the deacons. It's what does the Word of God say that's always the first thing that we look at. Now, now. We live that, okay. Okay. That's who we are. That's who we intend to be. We talk about it all the time in Starting Point. Methods we hold loosely, message we hold what? Tightly. Hold very tightly. So, but there's some questions that come up, all right? There's some questions that some of your friends have that you're not sure how to answer. There are some questions that you have. Anytime you start to come, Toward the last stretch of things like Easter or Christmas, you see news magazines and news shows, and all of a sudden they kind of throw all this shade at the Bible. So there's questions that come up. You know, how do we know the right books were put into the Bible? I mean, there's 66 books, but I saw a CNN special and it said there were some books that were left out and they should have been in there. How do we know the right ones are in there? Okay, what are you going to answer there? Some other ones. Uh, what about. I was in class the other day, and one of my professors said that there were some contradictions in that book. I mean, that's a pretty serious claim, all right? All right. What, what, what about those? Uh, it, are there, is there any proof outside the Bible itself that the events in the Bible actually happened? Or some that are really just the questions of a disciple, and I've heard these throughout ministry. I've had some of these. You know, It's like, man, I believe it, but how come sometime it goes days without actually getting in there? I'm reading the Bible and I had the best of intentions. And you know, I signed up for that read the Bible in a year plan, and I got to the book of Numbers and I just died right there. I just died a slow death and I never went back to it because I couldn't understand it. All right, what's the deal? I can't understand parts of the Bible. What do I do if I can't understand it? All those are good questions, all right? So here's what I'm going to challenge us to do today. Okay, the Bible says that the number one commandment for you as a Christ follower is to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So today, there's kind of two parts. The first one, we're going to love God with our mind. I want you to lean in. I want you to press in. This is not going to be a, a seminary class, but we're going to take about 10 minutes, and we're going to try to answer some questions that people have. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, Always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. All right, the word defense is where we get our word apologetics from. It doesn't mean you got to know every answer to every question. If you don't know the answer to a question, somebody asks you, just humble yourself and say, man, I do not know the answer, but I will find out, and I will tell you in the next day or two, I promise, and then go find the answer. But you and I need to have some grasp of it, all right? The Bible does not require you, and God does not require you to check your intellect at the door to become a disciple of Jesus, okay? It has satisfied the best minds in all of human history, so you and I are not going to all of a sudden find the one question nobody has, all right? So we want to love the Lord with our mind on the first part. In the back half, we're going to say, hey, God, I want to give you my heart, there's some things, a lot of us, we don't need to be convinced about the veracity or the integrity of the Bible, but the bottom line is, it has not gotten off your shelf since last Sunday. Last Sunday was the last time you got it out, all right? It's been in the back of your car the entire week, and so it's not a matter of you, you respect it, you revere it, you just don't read it, all right? So how do we actually get in there and benefit from the Bible? So here's where our text is going to be, Acts chapter 1. The first few, we're just going to sort of set it up. I'm going to highlight the parts that are uh, uh, ones we're going to come back to, okay? So here's what it is. Remember, Acts chapter 1, last week was the mission. It's like, hey, go and wait in Jerusalem. And here's the way it goes. They return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. And by the way, this is not like a huge journey, okay? They're really, really close. But he's like, go back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem it says, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Sabbath day's journey away is like 2,000 steps, all right? It was, goes back to those extra laws they put on there, what would determine to be work on the Sabbath. And they said it's about 2,000 steps. And so it's about 2,000 steps away. And here it is. And when they had entered... They went up to the upper room. Now, some of your Bibles and some people are like, that's the same upper room that Jesus celebrated the Lord's Supper with. We don't know if that's true or not. All right, there was many, many upper rooms in the Bible, all right? Many upper rooms in Palestinian homes back then. An upper room was basically the roof where you could go up there. Usually there was a little bit of shade. You could go up there to have some... peace and quiet. You could go up there to get away from the babies. You could go up there to read, or you could go up there to entertain, all right? But either way, they went up to a fairly large house, because you're going to see there's 120 there, where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas. By the way, this is not Judas Iscariot, all right? How bad would it be to have had that name back then. I mean, just, just a real quick sidebar. This is Judas, the son of James. Imagine introducing yourself. What's your name? I'm Judas. Not that Judas, okay? I'm not that Judas. I'm the different Judas, but that's what his name was. And here it is. Uh, make a couple of comments here. All these were with one accord. They were devoting themselves to prayer. We'll look at that in a number of weeks. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I don't miss this last part. And it says, and his brothers. It's verses like this is the reason that we do not teach the perpetual virginity of of Mary, all right? Why would that be? It's because he had a lot of brothers. The Bible at least talks about five brothers and two sisters, okay? All right? They had the same mom, different dad. Jesus was the firstborn, didn't have an earthly dad. Uh, But the reason we don't say, hey, Mary was a virgin the rest of her life is why? Because we kind of know how these things usually work, and the way they work is uh, she was not a perpetual virgin, all right? And as a matter of fact, you look at the brothers, it's pretty amazing just when You look at when you look at the brothers, uh, they initially thought he was crazy. If you remember some of those verses early in the gospels, it's like the family's like, You're crazy at the start of his ministry. You're crazy. You're saying you're the son of God. You're nuts. You're nuts. Come on home. Come home with us. We will put you in a padded room. That is what they thought initially of Jesus. All right. But then you see, after he got risen from the dead, after he rose from the dead, Mary became a worshiper of Jesus herself. Two of his brothers, James and Jude, right, James was actually ended up being the pastor, the leader of the church there in Jerusalem. All right, so they became pastors. The historian, the secular historian, a guy named Josephus, he said that James, again, this is the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. I mean, let me ask you this question. What would it take for you to be convinced that your brother was the Lord God of heaven? I I I I think a lot for me to think that my brothers, oh yeah, you're the savior, but they believed it after they saw the resurrection. History says that not only was the leader of the church, he was stoned for his belief that Jesus was the Lord, and he died and he rose again. So, um, verse 15. In those days, Peter uh, stood up. Peter was the leader in the early church. If you looked at the book of Acts, Peter is the leader at the first part. Paul is the main character in the back half of the book of Acts. They stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was all about 120 and said, now look at this, Brothers, now highlighted this to bring your attention to it. Notice this. Notice how the apostles looked at, in this case, the Old Testament as they're going through this. So what they're doing is they're gonna be picking, they're gonna be picking a replacement for Judas Iscariot. And the way they go about picking it and actually doing things is by looking at God's word in the Old Testament. So, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David. Now, don't miss the way that he puts that. He says the Holy Spirit spoke it, but David actually put it down. And he's referring to a psalm which David wrote. Concerning Judas, Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, we're going to go a couple more verses here. And here it is. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now, some of your Bibles, if you've got it on a tablet or if you've got it on a paper, when When they start to quote a verse from another part of the Bible, a lot of times they'll make it noted. Some of your Bibles actually have it indented. Some of them have it in quotes. But just realize when that's happening, what's going on is they are quoting a different part of the Bible like they are here. And then there's a little commentary here. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. You're like, that is so gross. Now, we're going to come back to that for one reason, is this is actually pointed out by some people as a contradiction in the Bible, all right? It's pointed out because in one place in the Bible, it says that Judas went out and hung himself, and yet right here, it says that that he fell down and all his bowels gushed out. So I was like, how do you reconcile those two? We'll come back to it. It's actually, that one's pretty easy. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama. That is the field of blood. That's that's what they're calling it. A couple more verses, and here it is again. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May. He, what is he doing? They're talking about some prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus. I'm going to tell you in a few minutes, there's 61, at least 61 prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled by Jesus. I'm not talking about some kind of, you know, hey, it's going to be super easy kind of prophecy. 61 specific things, things about like resurrection and crucifixion and where he was born and who his descendants were and what family he would come from and all that kind of stuff hundreds of years before it actually happened. It says, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. And just a, let's, do a, let's do a couple more verses here. So, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, that's the start of Jesus' public ministry. Until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. We'll come back to that as well. That is one of the three or so main points that the early church looked at in what is called the canon. That is, how do you know which, which books to choose? What gospels should you include here? And what they're doing here is an apostle needed to be able to see and witness not just the ministry of Jesus, but the resurrected Christ as well so all those being said let's uh, let's do a couple of things here um before we talk again lean in give me 10 minutes love the lord with your mind for a second and let's take and there's and we're going to put some resources on the web this week whether it may be on social media at facebook live or whatever and i'll give you three or four resources that dive much deeper into this but for time's sake. We're going to do a flyby of about four quick evidences about why you can have some confidence and it answers some questions. And then after that, the second part of it, what we're going to do is we're going to dive in and say, how can I personally, even this week, how can I benefit? How does this help my marriage? All right? How does this help me understand purpose? How does this give me back my joy? How does all that happen? But before, let's figure out how do we have some confidence in the Bible. So I'm going to list four of them. You guys, uh, you can also pray, man, all this week. uh, If I shook your hand earlier, don't freak out because the cold is over. But I am trying to find out right now where in the throat I can find a voice. So you all pray. It's the voice hadn't come back. So I'm sucking on about the 14th lozenger from this morning already. So just pray that those things would uh, miraculously heal the throat. Number one, fulfill prophecy. Fulfill prophecies. Verse 16. Go ahead and look at your Bible. Verse 16, it says the apostle saw, it says the apostle saw the Old Testament scriptures as fulfilled prophecy, a call them scripture, and then they says fulfilled, which means they were predictive in nature. Verse 20, he quotes two. Don't turn to them. He quotes a verse out of Psalm 69. That's the first one. He quotes us, he quotes part of Psalm 69. And then he goes by and then he quotes another one and he quotes Psalm 109 and then he applies those texts to Judas and replacing him. Now stay with me on this one. Scholars say that there are 61 at least. Somebody else said there's like 330 and some of those are, I would agree that it's closer to that number, but there's 61 that you can't even cast a doubt on. There's 61 direct prophecies in the Old Testament about the expected Messiah that get fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, where he was born, his ancestry, his betrayal, his manner of death. Psalm 22 talks about, I think it's Psalm 22, talks about the crucifixion, and crucifixion at the time that that psalm was written had not even been invented yet. And yet it's predicting, okay, this is the way that the Messiah is actually going to be be executed. The fact that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, that he would be raised from the dead, on and on and on and on and on. All right, so here's the... uh, one mathematician said the chances, listen, the chances of just eight of those 61 prophecies being fulfilled in one man. Stay with me, all right? Some of you guys were like, uh, like me. When algebra came, your eyes glazed over and you're like, I can't hear it. Okay, I don't understand, all right? That's me, but just stay with me. Mathematician says the chances of just eight Out of the 61 prophecies about the coming Messiah being fulfilled in one man are one in 10. Here's what it is. I'll I'll put it down, all right? One in 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 with 17 zeros behind it. It's like one in 10. I couldn't even figure out what. Was that quadrillionth? I don't even know what that is. One to 10 to the 17th power. Not that all 61, but just eight out of 61 would be fulfilled in one person. It's, and we're like, well, they kind of weaved it in there. You can't do stuff that was predicted 700 years before. Like Micah 5.2 says he would be born in Bethlehem. That's 700 years before Jesus was even born. He couldn't sit there and figure out a way to be born in Bethlehem to just kind of fit the narrative. The mathematician goes on and says, he says, you can take a silver dollar. If you take a silver dollar, you put an X on it. He said the chances that we're talking about that one to 10 to the 17th power is like that is enough silver dollars to fill up the state of North and South Carolina two feet deep with silver dollars. Two feet deep North Carolina, South Carolina, fill it up two feet deep, put an X on one of the silver dollars, throw it out in the midst of that, rustle them all back up, mix them all up again, blindfold the guy, have the blindfolded man go out somewhere in the two-state area, and then reach down and pick up the coin. The chances of those prophecies being fulfilled in one man are the same chances of a guy going out there and picking up the X marks the spot coin out of two states, two feet in the states of North and South Carolina. It's like, that does not happen. And so when you're sitting there thinking about, man, I'm not sure, I just need some evidence. Part of it is the fact that, you know, there's some stuff that was said very specifically. I'll give you one other, let me give you you two or three other ones. This one, some of you are going to go, well, that's internal evidence, that's not really, I will say this, for the skeptic, this is the least convincing. But you need to know what the Bible actually says about itself, all right? So if you're like, well, the Bible is saying that's circular reasoning. I understand that, but you still need to understand what the Bible does say in the internal evidence that is there about how we got our Bible, all right? Look at verse 16, the one I pointed out. It says, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit spoke, but it came from the mouth of David. So David wrote the verse but Peter is saying the Holy Spirit spoke it. In other words, the scripture claims that human authors wrote it, but it was the spoken word of God and they had to do it like it was told them. Do you all remember how if you grew up with brothers and sisters and you had a mom or a dad and your mom or your dad would say, go tell your brothers be home by six. When you showed up and said, dad says to be home by six o'clock, you are speaking not from your own authority, you're speaking from your dad's authority, Okay. Mom says you better not touch those cookies, okay? You're speaking on your mom's authority. If you change their message, you go from their authority to your authority, which is no authority. But when you're speaking on their behalf, you're saying, I'm speaking on behalf of mom or dad. That's what the scripture claims about itself. A couple of verses here. Second Peter 1.21, just jot it down. It's, here's, sort of the, here's what I would call is the theology behind it. It says, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word carried along is where we get our word wind from. It's the idea that the wind caught the sails, and then like how wind moves the sailboat, it's the idea of God is putting the words for the author to put down without getting away from their personality. You do see personalities in the Bible. All right, Paul is super logical, systemic boom, boom, boom. it's like a, it's like a professor here's the logical argument. Peter is like all over the place, why because that is his personality, and yet it says God wrote that and so you're like, well uh, again, that's circular reasoning all right they're like, you know what that's the Bible is saying that the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true that's circular reasoning, all right that's like those hyper high- hyperbolic statements on books, you know, the books that are like, best book ever written, all right, or those barbecue joints. It's like, voted the best barbecue in the state. I mean, who, vo- who votes on that, all right? Who vo- we voted on that, the people that own the restaurant, that's what, or how about some of you golfers out there? It's like, have you ever seen this, like, championship golf course, and it's like a goat ranch, okay? It's like, who voted this thing a championship? It's not a championship golf. It's so, so you voted it yourself, to understand, though, when the Bible talks about that, it's not doing anything more than exactly what Jesus Christ thought about the Bible. You're like, how is that? Let me show you a verse, and just you can look at it later. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, longest consecutive sermon that he preached that we have record of. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. All right? Generally what you can just think of is Old Testament, okay? The law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, here's the verse I want you to just put in your memory bank. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. What is an iota? An iota is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It is like an apostrophe, loved ones, all right? It is like an afterthought. It would be like you put an apostrophe. It's like nothing more than like, that's it. I mean, it looks like almost like a tiny little ink spill. He says, not an iota. Or not a dot. I think some of your translations say a jot or a tittle, all right? So the idea is, in in, in an iota, a dot is what it says. It's a dot. In the Hebrew alphabet, what they would do in Hebrew lettering, they would put a dot under some of the letters to distinguish it from the letter next to it. It's like it doesn't even have its own letter. It's just a dot, okay? He said, they will not pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Point is this, is that Jesus made crystal clear that, you know what, I, I understand. That God gave us this book. And here's, here's some other example. In the gospels, we see Jesus reference Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, Isaac and Jacob, manna in the wilderness, serpent in the wilderness, Moses is the lawgiver, David and Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Naaman, Zechariah, even Jonah never at one, never one time questioning a single event, single miracle, single historical claim, Jesus obviously believed. He obviously believed in the message of the Bible. Sorry, that's, that's two. You're like, well, I, I need more than that, all right? So let me give you a third one, all right? Unity of message, unity of message, unity of message. You can have confidence, unity of, there's 40 different authors in this book, 40 different, very diverse people, written over 1,500 years in three different languages. Let me say it again. Okay. You've got forty different authors, and they're not all the same thing. You've got shepherds, you have kings, you have rich, you have poor, you have super-educated doctors, and you have very uneducated farmers. You've got everything in between. Forty different authors, fifteen hundred years, three different languages, and yet a consistent storyline. In the early part of the Bible, it's mankind's fall, a need for redemption. The gospels, redemption is accomplished. Revelation is the fully realized redemption that God has given. You have unity of symbolism. Fire equals judgment. Water and oil equals the Holy Spirit. Blood equals the agent of redemption. Leaven represents sin. You're like, well, I was watching a talk show over there. I was watching Mari or whoever. I was watching. And they were saying there was a bunch of contradictions, right? Or I was having a quiet time watching Bill Maher, and they were saying that, you know what, there's a lot of contradictions. What do I do with that? Now, don't be a don't be a jack and and pop back to them. Show me where you agnostic. I mean, don't do that. All right, but you can ask what what contradictions would you what What, what are you thinking about? Nine times out of ten, they're like, I don't know. Let me. I'll get back with you. But there are some things you're like, all right. But I would say there's not hardly anything that I can think of that in a three-minute Google search of that passage cannot come up with at least a very plausible explanation. Let me give you a couple. Don't want to spend all our time on this, but uh, sometimes they're just, understand the Bible does use what we're going to call accepted literary devices. They use things like metaphors, right? What you're always asking is, what did the Bible mean then to who it was writing, all right? There's some, we use those all the time. I'll give you one example. I hear a decent amount. Isaiah 11 verse 12 says this. It says, and God will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. And I've heard people say, you know what? What that means is he thought the earth was flat. Thought the earth was flat. There's four corners. That's what he's referring to. Did he mean that? No, he did not. Here's here's what I would say. He is no more mistaken than the meteorologist on TV who reports about the time for sunrise and sun set. He's not claiming that the sun actually rises and set. He's using a language that is accepted, okay? you feel like the sun does too rise, and it does just, you know, ask your parent or ask your teacher, so just Google that, all right? So he's using language, picturesque, and the Bible does use that. Now, sometimes people actually point out to this very passage and say that's a very clear contradiction uh, in here. So look at, look at the text again, because Matthew chapter 27 Says that Judas Judas hung himself. This passage says that he fell down off of a cliff and his bowels burst out. Matthew says that the money that Judas earned for betraying Jesus, he threw back into the temple and the Jewish authorities used it to buy a field. But when Peter retells the story here in Acts, he says that Judas bought a field with the 30 pieces of silver. So the question is, did Judas buy the field or did he throw the money back? People are like, that's a contradiction. It's not a contradiction at all. Some of y'all have actually been to the Holy Land, and you see this place over there where he was, where he actually hung himself. You see that all over the place, there are ledges and cliffs, 20, 25, 30 feet high all over the place. So a plausible explanation would be this. When you hang yourself, your body stays that way for a long time. The body swells up. Maybe the branch broke. Maybe the rope broke. Maybe the rope came untied. He fell down. Everything ruptured. His gut spilled out. Okay? That's not that hard to think that's the case. All right? What about this? What about the money? One writer says he threw it back. The other one says he bought a field with it. I would just say what probably happened is that Judas threw the money back and the Jewish authorities bought the field. Peter just tells the story, shortens it, and says Judas bought the field. Why? Because he'd earned the money from selling out Jesus, all right? You and I do that all the time. And so, you know, before you're like, I'm not sure there's a bunch of errors that's popular today. I'll put it this way. It's popular today to say the Bible and the Gospels are primarily myths and legends, and it really became in vogue about, what is it, about 15, 20 years ago when the Da Vinci Code movie came out. And basically, the genesis of that thing was that the first Christians believed Jesus was a pretty good guy, you know, kind of a nice hippie. And he was a nice teacher. And over time, what they did is they invented stories and they invented his deity so that they, as, as, as he had more authority, then they themselves would have more authority. And that is, uh, it really just doesn't stand up to just basic history. And so, here's what I'll just use the last one. And that, that would be this. And this is going to be the last one, and then we're going to dive where you are. The idea is the date and nature of the Gospels, the date and the nature of the Gospels. Almost even the most liberal scholars understand that the majority of the New Testament was written between 80, 40 and 65. Now, don't miss that. What that means is there were people that were still alive when the Gospels were written, and he actually says, go and ask these people, and there were specific people mentioned. It's like he showed himself to 500 people, and some of them get named and so if it happens when people are still alive, if you wanted to like shut it down immediately, go ask that guy, did you see this happen? If you really wanted to mix everything up, you would wait until all of that generation had died. Wait a while, wait 60, 70 years, then write it, and then you can make up whatever you want to. 1 Corinthians 15, which is written right around 55 AD, and that's really, again, not contested. Paul says there are 500 people who are alive, saw Jesus, and he names a few, says go check with him. Again, that's not the kind of thing that's not the kind of thing that you would do if you wanted to kind of mix up the story a little bit. A couple more things. Uh, verse 22. If you see verse 22, he picks up another apostle. It says he has to be an eyewitness to the resurrection the ministry of Jesus. Now, a lot of people are like, uh, how, do we, how do we get the 66 books we got? And it's called the canon, all right? The word canon It's not like boom, canon. It's like canon means measuring stick, all right? It means what are the criteria in which we're looked at? And again, let me just mention this one, but we'll put more out on the web this week. There's three main ones, but one of the big ones you need to understand is here, is that it's written by an apostle themselves, or were eyewitnesses and under the supervision supervision of an apostle, like Mark's gospel was written under the supervision of Peter, okay? Let me give you just, because here's the idea, and this, this really jumped about, during the Da Vinci Code. Here's basically, let me be clear on this. The idea on guys like Dan Brown of the Da Vinci Code said that differing gospel accounts believe that Jesus's first followers and in the fourth century, the Roman emperor Constantine selected his favorite, which of the gospels he liked the most, and then he destroyed the, the best, the rest of them. There's no way, listen to me, there's just no way that is historically accurate at all. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which were the only ones that actually came out of the apostolic community, were literally all over the world in a bunch of different languages by the time Constantine even came on the scene. Let me say it again. Let me just say this again. When you look at the history and where people are dating the different ones, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the ones that came out of the apostolic community, part of the canon, those came out they were all over the world in a bunch of different languages by the time Constantine even came on the scene there is no way he could have collected up all the different ones and destroyed them you're like yeah but I saw this on the news the other night and it talked about quote the lost gospels the lost gospels the gospel of Peter or Thomas or Judas or Casper the Freely Ghost or whatever and they've got messages that contradict what we have in Matthew Mark Luke and John I mean again you're going to see that as we get closer and closer to Easter here's what I would say All these gospels, they show clear evidence of being written a couple of hundred years after the time of the apostles, after the time. So you're like, okay, 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 okay. My head is about to explode. You're acting like a prof. I'm not trying to act like a prof, right? right? I'm trying to equip you so that your faith doesn't get torpedoed by the next news show that comes on or the next Newsweek magazine that has Jesus over there. It's like, we found the lost Jesus. Listen, you do not have to check your intellect at the door to be a disciple of Jesus, all right? You don't have to do that. But, but my question is, even if you believe all that, I would say here at our church and our faith tradition most of us, it's not a struggle with confidence in the Bible. It's consistency with the Bible. You're like, I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. I just hadn't cracked it open since last Sunday. So how do I benefit from it? How do I get in there and do it? And so the rest of this is all about your heart. This is as pragmatic as I know how to get. And then I'm going to give you a challenge. I'm going to give us a challenge as a church. It's not a year-long challenge. It's not read the Bible. You know, okay, those are great. It's a weak challenge that we're all going to try to take, all right? I'm going to give you the challenge, all right? Most people, when you're like, that's a challenge, they'll step up to it, and I think you will too, all right? I know for a fact Hendersonville campus will step up to this challenge, all right? Marcus Hayes said they are by far the most biblically literate campus we have, and I'm going to challenge that, all right? I just don't think that's the case, all right? I think at least Franklin and maybe Arden are at least as literate, deal? All right, so we're going to see how that works. So here's the first one is this, all right? First of all, this is like, you're pretty basic today, pastor. Get it, okay? Just get a Bible. Just get it. All right, pick the thing up. Some of, I mean, man, listen, I love you, I love you, I love you. Some of you have got like seven Bibles at home collecting dust. Seriously. It's been so long, other than at church, you've actually interacted in there and you just got to get it i mean pick it up not just respecting it and revering but actually do it bring it okay actually bring your bible to church okay um, you can have it on a tablet that's awesome That's not a fake bible i joke with that sometimes it's like that's a fake but it's not a fake bible right it's not the leather that makes it god's word it's the word so if you have you can have it on your phone all right you need to have it on your phone all right you got you got, you got all sorts of games on your phone. Nothing wrong with that. All right. Some of you got Candy Crush, but you don't have a Bible on your phone. Really? Really? Get, put the Bible on your phone. They're free apps. All right. Put the ESV Bible on your phone. Put the, uh, uh, put, put the U version, which is basically kind of has all different kinds of versions. Put that app on your phone. They're free, okay? What else in life is free, okay? The Bible on your phone is free and salvation is free. That's about the only thing that's going to be free. Just put that on your phone. Um, here's what I would say. I would say, like, what translation should you use? Let me be clear. There's a lot of great translations out there, but let me give you a little bit of guidance here. Just so you know, what what I tend to use is I tend to use what's called an ESV. Is that the only good translation? It's not. There's a lot of other good ones. All right. KJV, New King James are good ones. All right. Uh, ESV, I just mentioned, uh, New American Standard. All those are very, 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 very good translations. All right. Very good translations. You're like, well, I have the message. There's nothing wrong with things like the message of the living Bible as long as you know what they are. Those are paraphrases, all right? Those are paraphrases. Those are not word for word. Those are thought for thought, all right? And as you kind of grow in your walk, those are fine, but just think about that as like a little baby bottle, okay? They're kind of a baby bottle. I know I'm going to get an email on that, but I'm just saying that's kind of what it is. It's kind of what it is. But then as you grow, you want to get down. Why? Because every sing- if Jesus is going to distinguish between an apostrophe and a dot, but at some point, you want to kind of dig in there and grow, all right? So use a translation, not a not a paraphrase. You know, as you grow, I would say if you're a if you're a student, you know, I would say one that's a little bit easier to read. It's not quite as as uh, it's word for word, be NIV. NIV is a good translation. It's not quite as a little more thought for thought, but it's not, it's not bad, I know. And some of you might write one about that, too. There's a book a while written that that was like from hell or something like that. I don't think it's from hell uh, at all, but those are good for, for kids and teens. Um, I would say, uh, <laughs> this is so fun today. Um, all right, uh, if you have a child, like a fourth grader on down, man, you, your home ought to have the Jesus Storybook Bible. All right, it just should. All right. Dads and moms, you're like, I don't know how to disciple junior. I don't know how to disciple junior. If you just read this with them at night, you're discipling them. Seriously, just read it. I mean, it's got, it's got, uh, it's got, it's got pictures. All right. It's got pictures too. I mean, I love that. It's got pictures, but it's really, really good for grade school. Uh, if you're like, I don't have a Bible. Um, I would say this, we have Bibles for everybody today. If you don't have one and can't afford one. Um, and I'm glad and thank you whoever put those together, and we want you to have one of these for free. I'll give you a warning on the front end when I looked at it this morning. I personally don't have good enough eyesight to read that right there, all right? So if you might have to get some magnifying glasses out there, or you've got to be under the age of 20 to have eyes that can actually read this, it's still a good one, all right? Still a very, very good one. But I'd say, again, go, go put one on your tablet, go put one on your phone. Um, when you're like, I want to play Candy Crush, just go to, the, go to that one, all right? All um, right. Here's another one, let's, 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 let's bring it down, uh, read it, okay, just read it, just read it, just, here's, here's some things I wrote down that, it, that God promises, if we just read it, uh, wisdom in my choices, power in temptation, encourage when I, when I am discouraged, I just say there's nothing better for your marriage, for your self-worth, for your purpose in life, to understand, you know what, I'm going to understand his big story, and then I get to understand my part in his story. That is so gratifying and joy-filled. This is the superfood, all right, superfood. This is the superfood of faith is the Bible. That's the superfood. You're like, I wish I had more joy. I wish I had more faith. I wish I could believe God's promises more. So much of it is time that you actually spend just reading the Bible, just reading it. Remember how superfoods, they say if you, hit, if you eat these foods, it's like I've got all this good stuff in it, antioxidants and, you know, I don't even know what super, blueberries and kale. I'm looking for the list that has fried okra as a superfood. That's the one I'm looking for. But you eat those things and what happens? Your body gets strong. You read the Bible. It's the superfood. All right, just read it. Just you don't even have to you don't have to know a bunch of stuff. Some of you come from a background that didn't encourage you to read the Bible. If I can't listen, please you can you can read the Bible and understand it. It's not calculus. It's not. There's a there's a small percentage that are a little bit difficult to understand. All right, but about ninety five percent of it you don't even have to jump through many cultural hurdles. So here's what we're doing. Um, I'm going to challenge you again at the end. But when you leave today. You're going to get this little card. It's a one-week challenge. It's got got Monday through Friday. We give you Saturday off. I mean, how awesome is that, right? You got Saturday off, and all we're doing in one week is covering one chapter in the Gospel of John, one chapter. It's like, I'm going to read John 14, 1 to 6 on Monday. It's going to read it. Yeah, but what am I going to do after that? What am I going to do? Well, I'm glad that you asked. We're going to get to that in a second. So, but here's, please understand, a lot of you struggle. We struggle reading the Bible because you look at it in a different way. You look at the Bible as a how-to manual. I know some great preachers and like the Bible is the how-to manual. And I understand what they're saying, but when you look at it as that strictly, you miss the bigger picture, okay? If you look at it as how-to and... uh, How do I raise my kids? How do I get my spouse back? How do I love people who don't like me? All those things. If that's the only reason you look at it and the only way you look at it, then when you look at a part that doesn't immediately apply to the question that you're asking, then you're going to think, what good is this stuff? Who cares about this temple stuff, all right? What is this deal about all these animals being sacrificed? What's this thing about the Holy Spirit? And you just, okay. So instead of looking at it as a how-to manual, instead of looking at it as like, I got to decide what job to take, all right? Look at it. Let me just do it this way. Let me read one passage or one paragraph from a book called Delighting in the Trinity, and I'll read part of this paragraph. It says, when you see that Christ is the subject of all the scriptures, that he is the word, the Lord, the Son, who reveals the Father, the promised hope, the true temple, the true sacrifice, the great high priest, the ultimate king, then you can read not so much asking, what does this mean for me right now, but what do I learn here of Jesus Christ? Knowing that the Bible is about him and not me means that instead of reading the Bible obsessing about me, I can gaze on him. And then through the pages, you get caught up in the wonder of his story. You find your heart strangely pounding for him in a way that you never could have if you'd have treated the Bible as just a book about you. Okay? The Bible's not about you, but it is for you. The Bible is not about you. It's about God, but it is for us. And so when we read it that way, all of a sudden it's like, that's awesome. I can understand that. And I'm not saying it's not going to take some discipline. It's, it's going to take some discipline. You're going to go work out. You're going to take some discipline, All right. If you had not been on a treadmill in six months and you're like, I'm going to get in shape. It's going to take a little bit of discipline for you to like, you know what? I'm going to put an alarm on and I'm going to start off. I mean, you got to do it. Sometimes it helps to have accountability. One of the best things you might do this week is just ask your friend or your spouse or whoever you're here with and say, hey, this week, let's just text each other each morning and say, hey, have you read your passage yet? Boom, what'd you learn? Something like that. And that would be very, very good. All right, uh, you want to hold me accountable this week? All right, text me each morning. I'm going to give you a fake phone number, but you, take me, you text me, you text me <laughs> each morning this week. See if I got it, all right? Deal? All right, so let me give you a few more. We're about almost out of time. All right, uh, personalize it, personalize it. Nobody gets excited when you receive in the mail, dear occupant. Nobody. It's like I can't wait to see what this letter is to the residents of. Nobody's like I can't wait to see the heartfelt message. Personalize the Bible. How do you personalize it? We talk about this a hundred times. We talked about it in my connect group the other night. Every passage you look at, ask these three questions. Ask these three. Personalize it by asking, "What did it mean then?" Boom. What did it mean then? What did it mean then? What is Paul telling? what is Peter talking about here in this first one? What did it mean then? What does it mean now? And then what does it mean to me personally? All right, don't flip them. Don't look at a passage and say, what does that mean to me personally? What do you think about it? That's how heresy begins, by the way, okay? What did God mean then? What does he mean now? And what's the transferable principle? And then what does he mean to me personally? All right, he's going to give you some questions right on here. All right, what do I learn about God? Is there a sin to avoid? Is there a command to obey? Is there a promise to trust? Is there an example I need to follow? What do I learn about myself and man in general? And what does this tell me about Jesus? Right there on the card, right there on the card. All right, everybody likes to get free stuff. That's a free stuff. So you get a bracelet, you get a Bible, you get a card. I mean, does it get any better? I don't think it does. All right, so let me give you the last, I'll get to a couple more. All right, uh, pray it, pray it. So here's the way you do it this is where it often gets personal. Where it often gets personal is when you take the historical and then you pray and God takes the historical and then makes it contemporary in your life when you pray over it. You read a passage. You read a passage like, um, like the John 14 that you're going to read and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And how do you personalize that? You personalize it by like, okay, have if I if gone that way? Have I received Christ as my savior? And then he talks about heaven. And then you're like, you know what? what you know, am I going to heaven? Am, do I, do, am I going there? And then it says that He will teach you. The Holy Spirit will teach you. Well, okay, what are we trying to teach me right now? You see, you're just ask, you're just pr- you're praying, and you're like, God, help me to actually do it. Now, when you pray it, don't pray it like you pray a, like a salad bar. All right, I mean, I, this is why I, we, Lord. Can I tell? You, I'm not going to tell you the restaurant because I don't want you to judge me. But um, like two months ago, I took Lori on a pretty fancy date in downtown Asheville. All right, and it had this salad bar. <laughs> it's like we don't even need to. We don't even need, I'll give you a hint. It was that one of those places you get to raise the little deal or flip the little thing over. It's a carnivore's dream, okay? So you take a little... You take the little mat thing. You take the little... Uh, it's like green or red. Green. You all been to that? You're know, green or red. I'm not going to tell you this. Don't judge. All right. So just, okay. If you're vegan, I'm sorry. I was, I was not. So here's the, here's the deal. This is like red and this is green. Green means no, 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 no more meat. Red means I think bring, 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 bring. Mine was like red for an hour. Okay. It was just an hour, hours. But before you do that, I know their strategy. Their strategy is go to the salad bar first But I've learned, don't go to the salad bar and fill up, all right? So when you go to the salad bar, what you do is you're really, really, really picky. All right. This is a this is a pro tip. All right. Pro tip is this. Pro tip is don't fill up if you're gonna try to eat a bunch of ribeye. Don't fill up on a bunch of stinking kale. All right, don't do that, because then you got no room for the ribeye. Okay, but that's the way some of us, let's be honest, some of us treat the Bible like a salad bar. I like this. We got four kinds of lettuce here. I didn't even know there were three kinds. I thought it was like iceberg, romaine, kale, and I don't even know what that is right there. I'll take that, I'll take that. I really don't like this. What in the world is that? I don't like beets, and I certainly don't want to. That is the way. Look, We're laughing, but look at me. That's the way a lot of Christians take the Bible. It's like, I like the part about love. I love the part about grace. I don't like the part about money. I don't like the part about sexual ethic. I don't like the part about loving people who don't love me. I certainly don't like the part about forgiving those people who have really done me wrong. And so let me just kind of ignore that. You know, actually, there's a guy named Thomas Jefferson in our history, in the history of our country. That's what he did. He clipped out parts of the Bible that were miraculous that he didn't like. You don't have that option. You don't have that option. And so when you pray it, you've got to say, okay, what is this telling me about baptism or marriage or forgiveness or whatever? And then this last one, and we're done. You got to just do it, all right? Just do what it says, okay? Just do what it says. Just do what it says. James's, uh, Jesus' half-brother, James, in his epistle said, the Bible's like a mirror. I told you before, last thing I do before I come out here is I check, make sure the mic's on right, uh, check, make sure that I got no towel lint on my face and I make sure my fly is up. That's the three <laughs> spiritual things that I do before I walk out here. I'm like, make sure that that, but how silly would that be? How silly would it be if I, if I looked in the mirror, saw a bunch of towel lint, the mic was going the wrong way. It's like, eh, whatever, whatever. No, you look at the mirror to correct it. You don't look at the mirror to correct the mirror. The mirror looks back at you saying, you got some areas that need changing. C.S. Lewis said, studying the Bible is like looking through a peephole and having somebody stare back at you. So here's what we're going to do. I'll tell you what, I I got this whole, I got this whole uh, deal where I was just going to kind of get you roused up and I'm not going to do that. I'll just, I will say this. When you look, I love the parts in the Bible. You can look at any part of the Bible and you can see Jesus. Any part of the Bible, you can see Jesus. Here's a quick sampling. All right, I, I, I was going to go through like all sixty-six books and get you going all Baptistocal and everything. I'm not going to do that. Just listen to it though. And say, okay, in Genesis, Genesis. He's the word of God creating the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorpost of of the heart so that you could escape the bonds of slavery. In Leviticus, he was the temple, the holy place where you can meet God. In Numbers, he was the ever-present guide, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet who is greater than Moses In Lamentations. He's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he's the river of life bringing healing to the nations. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, he's the ever-faithful husband pursuing us as an unfaithful bride. In Matthew, he's the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's the son of God. In Luke, he's the savior born to us. In the city of David, Christ the Lord. In John, he's the word become flesh dwelling among us. And here we are in the book of Acts. He is Christ, the risen Lord, proclaiming salvation to the nations. And the question that I want to ask is, here's what I'm going to challenge you. We're not even going to sing a song. We're not even going to sing a song. All right, You're like, we got to. It's church. We have to sing a song and we've got to do the first, second and fourth stanzas. We do not have to do that here's what we're going to do. We're going to do it one way. And we're going to do this at all the campuses. And we don't know, we got cameras and we'll get reports later. But in all seriousness, when you leave, you don't even have this in your hand yet. Okay. When you leave, you're going to have somebody hand this to you. I already told you what it is. It's basically a five-day challenge. It's Monday. Read this, write out a couple of things to these questions, pray for a few minutes. Okay. You can do it in five minutes. You're like, I want more. I want more. You can use as much as you want, bro. All right? You can use as much as you want. What I'm asking is saying at least for five. You're like, what if I miss Tuesday? Then you got to work Saturday, okay? That's what happens. So we're not, to, well, what if I only want to do three? Then this is, this is not for you, okay? All right? Grow up, put some big boy pants on, and say, I can do five days. All right? So I don't mean this to, I'm not mocking anybody. All I'm saying is you, this is minimum, all right? People in other parts of the world, and I'm not exact, people in other parts of the world, they are passing around scraps of chapters because they don't have a Bible. At great risk to themselves, they will take like a little sampling and pass it along and they'll memorize it and then pass it to somebody else. As where we got like seven. We're blessed we're blessed, but let's not be blessed and fat and happy. All right. Let's be humble and let's be hungry and let's get into God's word this week together. So here's the way we're going to do it. I'm going to pray for us before we do that. If you're like, I want to take the five day challenge for the next five days by the grace of God, for the glory of God, for the power of the spirit of God, I am just going to commit myself by the power of the spirit to get into God's word, read the passage. Ask some questions of it. Let it ask some questions of me. Pray. And by the end of the week, you're going to have all of John 14, one one chapter down. And again, this is, some of you don't have a Bible. But if you have a Bible, here's the way I'd ask you to respond. we're We're going like old school here. We're going to go old school. We like to refer to that as vintage, okay? We're going to go vintage whether your Bible's on your tablet, your phone, most everybody's got a phone, even if, you go, if you're trying to figure out how do you put the app on there, we can help with that. But take your Bible, your app, your phone, your tablet, your intentions, if that's all you've got. And we'll give you a Bible here. Um, and I just want you to stand and just you don't have to go way up high. Just kind of put your Bible up like this, all right? Just put your Bible up. And by putting your hand up, you're like, go ahead and stand up, put your Bible up and just say, for the, for the next week, I'm just going to take the five-day challenge. Hendersonville, go ahead and stand up. Franklin, everybody just stand up. Okay? All right. Good job. And if you're like, I'm not really sure I believe it, here's what my challenge to you is as well. Just take the challenge anyway. All right, if it's not God's word, then what are you afraid of? All right? Just take, just read it. Say, God, hey, if you're real, would you speak to me this week? All right? God usually answers the honest doubter, not the cynical But the honest doubt, that's like, I want to know if you're real or not, then just the five-day challenge. Just like, hey, I'm going to read this week. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask God if you'd reveal yourself. I'm not testing him. I'm asking him, okay? All right, look around the room real quick. So you got some brothers and sisters that are going to go along with you. Get somebody to kind of hold you accountable this week. All right, I'll give you the fake number in a minute. All right, so got it? All right, bow your heads. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for it. I pray that you would teach us this week out of John 14. Got to pray this week that... The discipline would turn into delight. I pray over cups of coffee. I pray over quiet times in the morning or late at night or lunch breaks or whatever that we would get into the word of God and you would speak to us and that our faith would be renewed. You would impart wisdom to our hearts. You would encourage us. You would strengthen our marriages. You would help us with purity and temptation. All those things that you promise. God, thank you. Thank you for the word. Thank you for the history that this particular church gets to stand on over the last 130 years of teaching and preaching it and believing it. Strengthen us in this area of our church and help us to teach that people in our communities and beyond lovingly and convincingly, humbly and yet boldly. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.